Okay, the story is told of a uh, minister who was preoccupied with thoughts of how he was going to, after the worship service, ask the congregation to come up with more money than they were expecting for repairs to the church building. Therefore, he was annoyed when he found that the regular organist did not show up that day and in his place was a substitute. And he went over to him, and the, and the substitute organist said, you know, what do you want me to play? He goes, you know what, I don't have time to think about it. You know, just, I, you just need to come up with something on your own after I make the announcement about the finances. And he went and he did his thing. And then during the service, the minister paused and said, brothers and sisters, we are in great difficulty, for the roof repairs cost twice as much as we expected. And we need $40,000 more than what we anticipated. In any of you who could pledge $1,000 or more, would you please stand up? And at that moment, the substitute organist played the Star-Spangled Banner. (laughs) And that is how the substitute organist became the new organist for the church. (laughs) But, you know, we live in a world where, you know, smooth-talking, quick-thinking leaders, you know, tell folks what they want to hear to encourage them to follow them in a direction that the leaders want them to go. You know, and by contrast, we are going through Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And Jesus encourages, you know, he encourages men and women to follow him by speaking the truth in love and compassionately reaching out to them in their time of need. And if you've got your Bibles handy, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, where we find a mother and her son who are in desperate need to be touched by Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 11, we read these words. And it came about soon afterwards that he, Jesus, went to a city called Nain, and his disciples going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of the mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother, and fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. You know, as I was reading through this, I couldn't help but think that the death of a child is certainly one of the greatest agonies possible in this life. Joseph Bailey knew what the loss of a child was like. In fact, he and his wife, Mary Lou, lost three sons, one at, the, one at 18 days after surgery, another at five years with leukemia, and the third at 18 years of age after a sledding accident. And so when Joe Bailey wrote about the death of a child, people listened. And here's part of what he had to say in his book that's entitled, The View from a Hearse. He said, of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of a sentence. Sometimes when the sentence has hardly even begun. He says, we expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it comes as no surprise. But, but the child, the youth, life lies ahead, and with its beauty, its wonder, its potential. It says, death is a cruel thief 
when it strikes down the young. And the suffering that usually precedes death is another reason childhood death is so hard for parents to bear. So then they have a child's heightened consciousness rather than ability to cope with suffering that comes with maturity. They also lack the kind of amnesia of senility in a way that is different from any other human relationship. A child is bone of his parents, bone, flesh of their flesh. And when a child dies, part of the parents is buried. He says, I met a man who was in his 70s. During our first 10 minutes together, after he had read my book, he contacted me and he came and we met. He brought the faded photograph of a child out of his wallet, his child, who had died almost 50 years before. A bearing of a part of oneself, a period before the end of a sentence, the death of a future. You know, and it is a burden that all parents fear, and such ultimately, and the ultimate pain was the emotional context of Jesus' next ministry event. And from this we learn of our need to be touched by Jesus. As I read through this account, I empathized with the plight of the boy's mother. As a father, now as a grandfather, I couldn't help but put myself in her position and wonder what such an experience would entail. If you're a father or mother, I ask you today as you go through this passage with me to walk with her in her sandals and empathize with what she had to be going through as we consider her need to be touched by Jesus. And from this passage, you'll note on our outline the reasons, first of all, the reasons why she needed his touch. And it's found in verses 11 and 12 where we read, And it came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. And we're told that as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. The town of Nain was about 25 miles from Capernaum, which made it about a day's journey by foot. So it was probably late in the afternoon that Jesus, his band of disciples, and this great multitude of people encountered an unexpected public display of mourning and of sorrow. The Jews always buried their dead on the same day that they died and before sunset, which meant that this was the most difficult of all days for this woman. Because not only had she lost her son that day, but the grieving process was a very short time. And she was already, as the procession was moving out of the city gate, on the way to the cemetery where she would bury the body of her son. And it's at this particular point where we see this contrast that's taking place. You've got Jesus in one crowd coming to the city and you've got this woman being helped out and carried out. And I can just imagine being held up by her friends as the body of her son precedes her. And the wailers and the mourners that were always hired for such an occasion were singing with cymbals and flutes and wailing and crying and mourning, lamenting the book of Lamentations, a book of crying and weeping. And this, this contrast that we see taking place here and the reason why she needed Jesus' touch was because we're told the condition of her son was that he was dead. And it's important that we recognize and understand as we see this, he was dead. Some of you may have read about the little girl in a city not too far from here who had fallen into a swimming pool and they took her to a local hospital and that they had declared her dead. And the medical, the medical team left the room and they call in a coroner and the coroner comes in and they begin to do their examination and part of it is that you take pictures of the body. And as the photographer was placing the body in such a manner to take a picture, he noticed that the body began to move in some way. 
And he called for the, the nurses and the doctors, and they came back in, and, you know, and, and the, 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 the little girl wasn't dead. She was still alive. And, you know, it's important that we recognize and understand that that's not the word that is used here in the Bible. The Bible says the boy was dead. He was not comatose. He was not, you know, uh, you know somehow in some catatonic state. You know, he was dead. And it's important that we recognize and understand his condition. He was dead. You know, the, the Bible says that, you know, his spirit and his soul had left his body. That's the Bible's definition of death. When, we, when our spirit, our soul leaves our body, he was no longer physically present in, the, in this life. And the Bible reflects physical death as a departure of the soul or spirit from the physical body. That is why as believers, Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing. Though I'm absent from my body, I will be present with the Lord. That there is a departure that takes place. And even at the, at the tomb of Jesus, the angels, if you recall, said to those who came to the tomb, you know, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is no longer here. He has risen just as he said. There is a departure that takes place. Our physical body remains while our spirit, our soul, departs this life to the next. The Bible also talks about a spiritual separation. You know, any of us who have ever been to a funeral, memorial service, whatever, particularly that of those who have viewings of the body, recognize and understand the body may be there, but the spirit or the soul is gone. It is very evident. But the Bible also talks about spiritual death in addition to physical death. And spiritual death is the separation from God from his original design of having fellowship with our creator. If you recall in the book of Genesis, the Bible teaches that spiritual death is a departure from God's original design, a separation from God, intimate fellowship with Him. God had warned Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate, quote, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, Genesis 3, 3. If you eat of that tree, you shall die. They ate. And though they did not immediately die physically, they did immediately die spiritually only to later die physically as well. This woman's son physically died, and the reason he died is because the soul that sins shall die. The wages are priced to be paid. The consequence of sin is death, spiritual death, physical death. You and I will die because God's indictment towards us is true, that none of us are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the soul that sins will surely die. We will die because God's accurate assessment is that you and I are sinners in desperate need of the touch of Jesus. See, the point is is that we all need to be touched by Jesus because we all, like her son, are spiritually dead. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians where Paul makes that amply clear to those in the city of Ephesus where in Ephesians 2 he writes these words, and you were dead. He was speaking of the believers at the city of Ephesus. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You were dead. You were dead people, spiritually dead. And among them, we too all, including Paul himself, he said, I was dead just like you. I was dead in my sins. We were dead and we lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of the world. 
We all are born into the world, alienated from God, children of wrath, living out our lives in the lust of the flesh, living to please ourselves. We've all learned that Jesus would use the physical world to teach spiritual truth. For example, when he said to the man, what is easier to, when he said to the leaders, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your pallet or walk, when he was talking to a lame man, they said, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. In order that you may know I have the authority to forgive sins, I will demonstrate with the physical, by the physical world and the things that I do that I have authority in the spiritual world as well. I have authority everywhere. Back to Luke chapter 7. You know, as we look at this in, in Luke 7, what I mentioned a moment ago was I want to point out a contrast of emotions. You got one crowd following Jesus, joyful, singing praises, filled with expectation on the way to the city... You have the other crowd, mourning, sorrowful, no hope, cemetery bound, life and death. In all humanity, you and me are in one crowd or the other. You are either alive to God and filled with joy, hope, headed for the holy city, as it says in Hebrews 11, whose architect and builder is God, having been touched by Jesus, or you are physically alive but dead to God, living physically in a cemetery. This world is a huge cemetery filled with dead people spiritually, though alive physically. They're dead to God, they're alive to sin, which is no life at all, and we need the touch of Jesus. That is the contrast that we see of these two processions. In addition to the condition of her son, this mother needed the touch of Jesus because, as we see, of her circumstances. We're told that she was a widow, having already lost her husband, who now mourns the loss of her only son. The large crowd posed a very ironic contrast to her actual state. She was now alone in the world, though surrounded by a ton of people. She was alone in this world without a protector or provider. And when tomorrow morning arose, she would awake by herself, brokenhearted and lonely, and she desperately needed the touch of Jesus. And you know what I found? That is exactly the truth, isn't it? We can be surrounded by a whole bunch of people, but I can't tell you the number of times that, you know what, when I've gone to visit somebody who is dying in a hospital and I have several people that I've had the, the uh, opportunity to be involved in that process as they left this life to the next. All the people in their life, and there's always a whole bunch of them, and it's kind of like, you know, and I'm experiencing as I go through it, and I don't say this for sympathy or anything, but just as a reality check, it's like, man, when people heard I had cancer, I, I was getting calls from people, I was getting letters, I was getting cards, and you know what? In three, four, five months goes downstream, and you know what? You're laying on a table, and at the end of the day, it really is just you and God. It really is. You know, I mean, it's great. I've got family. My wife's been awesome. My family, you have been great. You know, I'm surrounded by people who love me, and I, and I praise God for that. We need to weep with those who weep. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to share one another's burdens, and that's a wonderful thing. But I'm just here to tell you, don't ever misunderstand. At the end of the day, it's just mono on mono or mono on Theo. It is you and God. That is it, and that's the extent of my, I think that was Spanish. I don't even know. So, you know, all right, good. So Spanish, a little Latin in there. It was all just all mixed up. But at the end of the day, the point is still the point. It's just you and God. I mean, that's it. And so her circumstances were she was surrounded by a whole bunch of people. But you know what? But she knew tomorrow morning when the crowd was gone, it was her and God. Her husband was gone. Her son was gone. Her support structure was gone. Her providers and protectors were gone. She had nowhere to turn but to God. And you know what I'm telling you? 
That's the best place to be in life. When God strips away everything so that we clearly see that we can trust in no one but God and lean on our, not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him, man, He will direct our paths. A third thing that's worth noting is that of the large crowds. And as I mentioned, not only is there a contrast or a conflict, con- confliction of, of, of what was going on here, but there was this large crowd. And the word that's used there where it says, and there was a sizable crowd in verse 12 from the city was with her. It's saying, man, this crowd was so big that they had a problem. They were coming out of the gate. Jesus and his multitudes were heading toward the gate. They got to a doorway basically and said, okay, what do we do now? We can't get through. You can't get through. There was, a, there was just a, a cease of activity. And in the midst of all that, the wailers stopped wailing, the mourners stopped mourning, and the praisers stopped praising, and the singers stopped singing. And there was nothing but silence here. And it was a very awkward time. If you've ever been in that moment where all of a sudden it gets silent, you've got to go, what's going to happen now? There's an air of anticipation here. It's what's going to happen now. And Jesus always used such moments as a platform to share God's love, to teach spiritual truth, to do something that would call attention upon who He is and what He can do. And that's exactly what happened here. And the second thing in verse 13 through 15, the results of the touch of Jesus are seen, and it's a wonderful, beautiful scene that we see happen. And when the Lord saw her, who? The widow, that broken woman, that lady who was so desperate and, and, and despondent and broken, being held up. And I can imagine she's being held up. I've been to funerals and I've seen those who have lost someone. And the grief is so overwhelming that you almost have to drag them to, to into the church. You almost have to drag them to the gravesite. They can't even walk. They're, they're, they're powerless. And I can just see him looking at this woman being held up by her friends. And he looks at her and he was moved. He felt compassion. And compassion is a word that is used often about Jesus Christ, and it's a wonderful word, word where he was, he was moved, he saw her, he felt compassion. It's the strongest words that could be used because it talks about the depth. He was moved to the depths of his heart. There is no stronger word in the Greek language for pity, sympathy, and feeling. And it is often used over and over again in the Gospels about our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason it's so important is this. Because the philosophy of the day was called Stoicism. The Stoics believed this, that God at best was apathetic towards people. And the reason was very simple. Because if you and I could move God, He could no longer be God because He's the ultimate authority. And how how can mere human beings ever move the immortal, mighty God to do something or act in a certain way that would be of any benefit to us? So their simple reasoning was this. God cannot care about people because if he cared about people and he was moved by our need at the time of need, he would no longer therefore be over control of us or sovereign in all things because you and I could influence his decisions. And when this word was used, it blew him away that we have a God who is a personal God. That he is moved by our needs. That he is affected by our plight. That he is empathetic and sympathetic and compassion. And compassion always meant that he would take action as we approach him. Those of us who have come to faith in Christ, the Bible says we can boldly approach the throne of grace. So that we will find comfort in our hour of need. 
that you can go to God and God will hear your prayers and God will act upon that. It isn't always like we would like Him to. We've talked many times about that. But, that, but, but it doesn't mean He doesn't listen to us. If you are willing, the leper said, you can cleanse me. Paul prayed three times, God, remove this affliction from me. But you know what? God says, no, I'm not going to. Because in your weakness, my strength will be perfected. And he left it in my life so that I don't boast in myself and all my great accomplishments for the kingdom of God. But I boast in Christ and him crucified. But he heard his prayer. He listened to him. In that case, he said, no, I got a better plan. The case of the leper, he said, you know what? I am willing. You're cleansed. He felt what she was going through, and she was moved. The point is simple. God cares. He is our maker. He is our sustainer. Every week I see the multitude of prayers of our church family as we get them, and what a wonderful thing that technology is for emails. It could be used for good. It could be used for evil. Praise God. We have the ability to make choices and that we can choose to do what's right. And all of you and your prayer requests and your needs and your hurts and your sorrows and and your agonies and and, and the conflict that's going on in your life, I'm here to tell you, you know, better yet, God is here for me to tell you this for Him. He cares for you. He loves you. He loves me. He hears our cries. He hears our afflictions. I have a father, the song goes, he calls me his own. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. Read Psalm 139. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. I have a maker. He formed my heart. And even before time began, my life was in his hands. And he knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. I'm encouraged to tell you that the touch of Jesus one day will remove every tear from all of our eyes. And if you turn ahead to the book of Revelation, we see the promise of God that that will happen. That Jesus Christ, the touch of Jesus, will remove every tear from our eyes. In Revelation chapter 21, in verse 4 we read, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And he also sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. It's already done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. We cannot pay a price for Jesus paid the whole thing, all of it, for those who will trust in him. He who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. And yet he goes on to warn those who reject God's love for them in this lifetime. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, those with hard hearts that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We must understand that there's comfort in the word of God, but there's also warning as well. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be touched by Jesus and you shall inherit these things that God has promised. And Jesus will wipe away every tear and there will never be sadness or sorrow or mourning or heartache. There will never be that that emptiness, that, that, that hurt in your heart when you get a report that comes back positive instead of a report that says, hey, I got news for you, it's negative. We will never experience that ever again for all of eternity. 
And he says, you know what? Tell people these words are true. This is God's truth. Understand that and know that. But he also says, but I also want to tell you, as true as that is, this is also true as well. If you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you will experience spiritual death and eternal separation from God for all of eternity in the lake of fire, as it is written in the Word of God. We need to recognize and understand that there's both comfort and warning. And, you know, and as I went through this, as we go back to Luke chapter 7, you, know, you may have an immense hurt that you can't even voice. Perhaps your trauma has left you inarticulate. You know, and as much as some of you think I like to talk, there are times where it's like I don't even know what to say anymore. You know, and you, I mean, you, you go to the doctors, you get these reports, you go for more tests, you go, and it's like people go, well, how's it going? Say, all I can say is God's in control. That I can say with certainty. Everything else, I don't have a clue. I just don't. But I know that God's in control, and I know that he loves me, and I know that he cares for me. I know that he hears my cries. I know that he hears my pleas. I know that he hears the things that I don't even know how to speak to him because he is God and he knows all things. That's a wonderful truth. And if you're hurting right now, you know, don't even worry about how to articulate it. He already knows because this lady didn't say anything to him. He felt sympathy, compassion, empathy, pity for her. He knew what she was going through. And the wonderful thing is that, you know, a compassion always requires action to alleviate the pain and the suffering. And I want you to notice back in Luke chapter 7, notice what he says to her. He says, you know what? He said, uh, don't cry. He says, do not weep. He's not saying, what, what are you crying about? There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> you know, suck it up. What's wrong with you? Don't you have any faith? He's not saying that. There's a season. There's a season to, to be born. There's a season to die. There's a season to, to mourn. There's a season to rejoice. There are seasons in life. There are chapters of the book that he has written about us. There, you know, we go through, you know what? Hey, there are times when we cry. But what he's saying to her is this. You don't need to cry no more. It's not going to be necessary. And here's why. Because I'm going to do something about your need. I'm going to do something about your need. And he demonstrates not only that he has compassion for us, but he is in control of all things, including the unseen world, the world of the dead. And I want you not to miss this. Jesus spoke. There was nothing required of the one being touched but obedience. Each time when Jesus raised a person from the dead, he did so by speaking the word. There were times where he'd say, you know what, here, put this mud on your eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and, and, you know what, and then you'll be able to see. There were times he said, go down to the water, spin around seven, seven times, and then you'll be clear of leprosy. There were times where he had people do certain things to enact upon them their own faith and trusting him. But every time he raised someone from the dead, he did nothing else but speak the word. He spoke the word. In Mark 4, 41, he took the child by the hand, he had the touch of Jesus, and he said to her, uh, Talitha come, which translated means little girl, I say to you arise. Little lamb, it's time to get up. Here in this passage, we see in Luke 7, 14, the same thing. He came up, touched the coffin, everybody came to a stop, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And he sat up. When he went to the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, the same thing. He stood outside the tomb and he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And it's a good thing he said Lazarus because everybody else would have came too. (laughs) And the point is we're never out of his sight. Psalm 139, all will hear his voice and all will obey. I don't want you to miss the fact that every person 
who's ever lived and ever departed this life to the next will hear the, the voice of Jesus Christ. For he has been given a name above every other name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. For those of us who have trusted him in this lifetime, we praise him for that. For those who rejected that gift of salvation, that free gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that'll be the last thing that they say to him at the great white throne judgment before he says, depart from me into the lake of fire. Every person in his own time will hear the voice of Jesus and obey him. Do it now or do it then. But you do it now, and the eternal rewards are here. You do it then, it'll be the last thing that haunts you for all of eternity. Trust in Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. We're all dead in our our sinfulness. We're all dead to God, alive to sin. We come into the world that way, and he says, repent. Turn from sin and turn to God. Recognize your need for forgiveness and go to the cross of Christ who died on the cross because of God's great love for us. Even when we're yet sinners, we sent Christ to die. Go to the cross and go to him humbly and brokenhearted. Forgive me of my sins and I believe you died in my place. I believe that you rose again from the dead and as best as I know how I receive you here and now as my Lord and Savior. Touched by Jesus at that moment in time. In Ephesians he goes on to say, Paul writes, but God... What's the answer to our problem of being born in sin and alienated from God? God, he's our answer. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And he raised us up with him. It's a done deal for those who have trusted in Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the work that God has ordained for us to do before the foundation of the world. All heard the voice of Jesus. Those who have rejected the touch of Jesus in this life will be resurrected to eternal damnation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, what? Would not perish. Those who don't will perish. Believe in him. Experience the touch of Jesus. And the last thing that I want to look at in this passage is in verses 16 through 17. We see this reaction that was there. And I want you to notice this, man. <laughs> you know, he's, on, he's not in a casket. He's on like a, a, a cot or maybe we'd call it like a, like a gurney or something like that. But basically a cot. And he's on this cot. The body is there and they're preceding him out of the city. And Jesus says, young man, arise. And he did. And he sat up. And he began to speak to his mother. We're not told what, what, what he said, but i got to imagine that that's quite a conversation. He spoke to his mother, and then Jesus gave him back to her. And I want you to notice the reaction that's here. It says that the reaction was, fear gripped them all. You think? <laughs> I'm thinking it would. Fear gripped them. It's like they just grabbed them. You know, you've been gripped by fear. It's like you're like, you know, you don't even know what to say. You don't know what to do. It's like the words won't come out of your mouth. Have you ever been so scared? I talked to someone the other day. So they walked into their backyard and there's a big old nasty rat. And, and, uh, and uh, they went around the corner and, and then, you know, one of those uh, lights, you know, the sensor lights came on. 
and the sensor light made, you know, the rat's shadow look like a grizzly bear. You know, it's like, this thing was just jumping through the yard. And it's like, whoa, you know, it's like, and he says, I couldn't even move. I was like, I was gripped by fear. That's nothing compared to what these people had to be going through. And I thought, you know what? That's the best place to be in life. Gripped by fear. And you know why it's so good? Because they recognized they were in the presence of God. Remember Peter, he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a, a sinful man. That is the best place to be in life. Because until you realize that you are sinful and that you are awful and that there is no hope in you and there is no remedy for your problem, then you won't be humble to turn to the only one who can save you. Until I realized what my problem was physically, there's no way in the world that I go to a hospital. Convince me you need to cut me up. Because it's just not something I'm signing up to do. And here's what we got to do. You know what? And that's the best place to be when you have a need that you don't even know you need sometimes. Let me convince you of your need. See, the Word of God is our tool to convince people of their greatest need. And their greatest need isn't healed, being healed from cancer or, or heart disease or this or that or financial need or your marriage. That, that's not your greatest need. You know what your greatest need is? Forgiveness. That's our greatest need. We need to be forgiven of our sins. And there's only one way that that can happen. We've got to be touched by Jesus. They were in a, a grip of fear. And you know what? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said this. He said, why are you people always afraid of people? You're afraid of people. What's the worst thing that a person can do to another person? Kill their body. Right? Jesus said, hey, you know what? Don't fear men who can only kill the body, but you better fear God who can send both body and soul to hell. Fear God. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they feared God, and that was the right reaction to what they just saw happen. The second thing is they responded, which is, which is the next thing to do, by glorifying God. They praised God. They worshiped God. They were in awe. Their jaws dropped. Did, did you see that? I saw that. You think he was really dead? I think he was really dead. Is he really alive? Hey, man, he sat up. He's talking to his mom. Now he's off the cot. They're walking away together. I'm thinking he is. You know what? I think we should praise God right now. They got, a, they got a thing I saw in the paper. They have a thing about the little girl. What was, was this a miracle? Was she really dead and came back to life? Or was it because the water temperature of the swimming pool was 50-some degrees and probably slowed her metabolism or her blood system down to a point where they didn't recognize it? And I'm here to tell you right now that, you know what, God can do miraculous things. God can bring someone from the dead. And I don't even want to get into the scientific argument of it, but when in doubt, praise God. Right? You can't lose. It's like, yeah, we got a God who does miracles. And then you get the cynic. Well, why can't he do this for me? Because you know what? He wants to reveal himself to you through this. Do you know him? Because those who know him are content with God's will. I'm content. I don't know what God's got planned for me, but I'm content because I know that he has plans for me, not of calamity or distress or anything like that. He's got great plans for me, and he's got great plans for you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more mourning. We will inherit everything that he promised that we will inherit and we'll be with him. He will be our God and we shall be his people for all of eternity. Man, you know what? It's a, it's a good program. You know, sometimes you've got to read the end of the book to really appreciate what's going on today. It'll get us through this moment in time. I read the book. It turns out great for those who have trusted in Jesus. And I read the book, and it turns out horribly for those who have not. They responded by glorifying God. And the word worship is thou art worthy, deserving, it is proper, it is fit. Revelation 4.11, we read this. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things, and because of your will, they existed and are created. The raising of this young man to life confirms this truth. God, you are worthy of our praise. Some of us are close to death every morning when we have to get up. It's a struggle for some of us to get out of bed. And I'm just here to tell you, instead of being grumpy and moaning and complaining, I want you tomorrow when you get up, jump out of bed, dancing and leaping and praising God because he's given you another day to live to serve him. And if you don't know him, he's given you another day to bow your knee to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because if you died in your sleep, you would awake in the presence one day at the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. And you will say that he is the Lord to the glory of God. And then he will say to you, be gone from me, for I never knew you. Every day God gives us is a gift unbeliever and believer. But you know what? I'm thinking believers, we should be praising God. It's like people ask me, how you doing? I say, hey, you know what? I'm doing great. How's your leg? Hey, I got one. I got two. You know, got one that's a little raw, a little fried. But you know what? I still got it. And I praise God for that. And if he decides to take that, then I'll praise God that I still have breath to praise God. And if he takes me out piece by piece, I'll praise him with whatever's left. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. Praise God, because he is worthy to be praised. And and what they recognized is this. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. For the Jewish audience, the, the phrases that are used here is extremely important, because it is a flashback to Elijah. And it is when Elijah cried out to God to heal the widow's son who had died. Elijah laid across the boy's body three times and said, God, heal him. God, bring him back to life. God, bring him back to life. And God answered his prayers, and every good Jewish family knew the story of how God used Elijah to raise up that widow's son. Two widows, 500 years apart, same God, The difference between Elijah is Elijah cried out to God for help. Jesus Christ did not have to cry out to God because he is God. That's a wonderful story. And the Jews that were in that audience should have known who was in their presence, the very Messiah, the very Savior that God had promised. They recognized him because they said to him, and it's exact same words, God has visited his people. Emmanuel, God is with us. Good stuff. I'm not going to say it's a good sermon because I, I, I got heard from you before, but, uh, but this, this, is, this is good stuff. And if you're going to sit in the front row, you better nod your head yes. Okay. All right. 
And we close with this. And the last thing is notice this. And the report concerning him went out all over Judea. The word report is the word logos, which means word. The word got out on the street. And it meant that there was an understanding of what was going on. You know, there was an understanding. They began to understand that Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus is the promised one of God. That Jesus is the Savior. This is the one that God had promised that would save his people from their sins. He's the one that we go to. He's the one that we turn to. Is there anybody else? There's no one else. Is there any other way? There's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. And no one comes unto the Father but through me. Jesus, they reported this. They recognized this. They reacted in fear. They responded with worship. They recognized that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Have you recognized that as well? Have you been touched by Jesus, because we all need the healing touch of Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him as your savior? Not only is he compassionate, but he has the power to, 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 to answer our prayers. He has the power to alleviate our afflictions. He has the power to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Have you been touched by Jesus? Have you been raised to the newness of life? Are you in church or are you in Christ? The difference is heaven or hell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are an awesome God and you are worthy to be praised. You know our names. You know our every thoughts. You see each tear that falls. And you hear us when we call. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you personally through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his death on their behalf and the power of his resurrection, that you would hear their cry today, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I'm in church, but I don't know what it means to be in Christ. I don't know if I died today, whether I'd go to heaven or not, if I'd be absent from my body, if I'd be present with you, or I'd be waiting for the final judgment. And God, I don't want that. I trust that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I believe that if I ask him to come into my life and to forgive me and to touch me, that he will. And he'll make me whole and complete. And I'll be a child of God. And I look forward to all your promises that were even read here today. That one day in heaven that you'll wipe away every tear and every sorrow and all mourning and and, and suffering will be gone. And that you will be our God. And we will be your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.